Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Joshua 21 will be 43 through 45 today as we do our second part of our introduction to the book of Joshua. Thank you for praying for one another. Um, and I ask that this time, even though Jordan has set aside at the beginning as we play through some music and pray, that God would have this blessing on this time. I ask that you would do that throughout this time as well. That you would pray for one another to be soft to hear the words of the Lord and to respond to him. And then I ask, also ask you to pray for me that God would both empower me and that I would be faithful to the truth. We have no idea what spiritual warfare is going on around us, but as we looked at a couple weeks ago, it's happening now. So we need to be in battle for each other for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the souls of the people that sit in this room here and for the world as well. So I ask you then as we continue today um, that you guys would continue to pray for each other and pray for me as well. Joshua 21, we'll just read three verses, 43 through 45, and we'll pray. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in kept promises. We rejoice in the fact that you have not only promised these good things, but that you have delivered and that you have given to your people. I pray today that you would soften our hearts we are busy, we are calloused by our own sin in the world around us. We have our own prince of our lives sitting on the throne oftentimes, us and our gods being pleasure, peace, comfort, accomplishment. I pray this morning, Lord, that you'd tear those idols away and that we would make certain that we understand that the, the glory and the kingship is yours and yours alone. I thank you for this time as we get to spend worshiping together you through this, this, the proclamation of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the word. I pray that you would do battle for us. And I pray that you would throw down those, Lord, that have high minds of themselves. Help them to see that this is wickedness and that they would accept the loving word of Jesus Christ who has said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You are a loving and gracious God. I pray that your spirit would be working today in our own hearts, that you prepare us for the text, and then prepare us to love you with our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the book of Joshua gives us um, a, a look at and an explanation of the divine acquisition of the promised land, the acquiring of this land. And therefore it shows and gives credence to Israel's claim on its territory. Like it's theirs because God gave it to them. That's what this book does. I'm going to do something real quick to help. This is just a high-level structure of the whole book of Joshua. You don't have to memorize it. 
I think it's just helpful for you to see some patterns. The first thing we're going to see in the first five chapters is this careful religious preparation. Now, I don't love the word religious, but it helps you understand how serious they were in this covenant relationship to Yahweh. We're going to eventually get there. We see this covenant renewal, even in circumcision with these people. So there is a divine and very specific, careful preparation that is all about God. That's the first thing in first five chapters. Six through 12, we have them actually taking the land. We have the conquests, we have the war, we have the spying, we have the you know, potential for attacks here and there, the burning of the land. So we actually have, through 6 through 12, the capture of the land. The third thing we're going to see in chapters 13 through 21 is most likely the, the part that most of you either skipped over or hit it on like double speed when you're listening to this part. This is the distribution of the lands. This is from this border to this border and this border to this border, names that you do not know. So that's the part of this one. We're going to get to why this is so important as well. Don't ignore that. But that's part of this. Very big section. If you see that, 13 through 21, just on the distribution to the tribes. The last thing we're going to see here is, uh, not that, chapters 22 through 24. And we're going to see that Joshua brings the people together, specifically the leaders, and he reflects on God's accomplishments in his own life and all that's been happening in Israel as they've come into the land. But then he's also going to exhort them as they are going to be in this land and live there and what that means. And if you notice, what's actually happening at the end in 22 through 24 is almost a restatement of what's happening at the beginning. The most important thing is that they would understand what it means to live under Yahweh's rule from the beginning as they go in to do this, but then as they go in to move in and live in this area. So this is a little bit of a high-level structure of what the book of Joshua looks like. What I want to do, though, is start this way. I want us to kind of enter the land with some expectation and kind of enter verse 1 when we start next week uh, with some ideas of what the expectation would have been like. Now, I'm going to speak to mostly, I'm going to guess mostly guys here first, but ladies, you'll be brought along. And maybe girls, you love this just as much as I do, but I love the outdoors. Like, I love, um, like, big tracts of land. I love hunting and fishing. I love walking and hiking through the mountains. I love big stretches of that. And you go through and you're on the Blue Ridge Parkway and you say, this is God's country. It's just huge and wonderful and, and beautiful. I also love working with my hands. Uh, I can remember multiple times my dad taking me out. Um, we'd go back in the woods behind our house and gather wood, cut down trees for firewood. I loved being out working the land, then bringing it back, and some of those things actually using for different projects that we'd do as well. I loved that part of that. There's something inside of me that you may not know, even though I live um, off Kempsville Road in a townhouse with a postage stamp for a backyard, I love the outdoors. And I would love to own a big section of this. And romantically, I would love to get out there and like have a homesteading adventure. But all the ladies in this room, they're like, oh, we've seen the homesteading shows. No way. We know what it takes to do that kind of stuff. Oh, I've read Laura Ingalls Wilder. There's no way we're doing that stuff. Let me talk to you for a minute. Imagine all those things your husband's like, yeah, let's go out and conquer this land and do all these things. It's, it's full of natural resources. There's fishing and, and game. There's places for all these things. I'll say one more thing now for the ladies, though. This place is not going from bare to coming up to settlements. This place is full of houses that have already been built, log cabins that are beautiful. I mean, we have little settlements along the way, gardens that are fully mature, bearing fruit. 
all these things throughout this huge parcel of thriving land that seems to be exactly what we need. It's good for industry. It's good for agriculture. It's like, man, this is the greatest spot, and we just love being out there. This is kind of what's going on here. Almost like Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 11 is real. He says this, The lands contained a great and good cities, great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill. And cisterns, or water places, or like wells, that you did not dig. And vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. This land is not only available, but this land is what God is telling you to go get. He's saying, go get that parcel of thriving land. It's good for trade. It's good for industry. It's got enough room for you and your descendants after you to control and use this area well. Man, go in and enjoy this place. Almost as if, like, he, he describes the land throughout this time as almost something that's so abundant that natural resources are flowing, like milk and honey. Like, this is the way the land is described. God has told them that this land is rightfully yours because I promised this land to your people hundreds of years before. I made a promise that I'm going to come through on, and this is the land that we were talking about. This is the one that you have access to. But it's further than that. Not just that it's, it's yours to look at and obtain. You need to go get it. The green light has been given. It's time to move forward. Now it's time for you to go in, take possession of this incredible land. And all of it is yours according to divine promise and decree. Not only is it yours by this, but it's a command to go get it. Not just like, if you want to go get it, you can get it. No, you need to go into this land and take it. But there's a kind of a weird thing here, and it's that the settlements didn't create themselves, and the, 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 the houses didn't create themselves, and the, uh, the, the, the livestock that is there, and the gardens, and the olives, and the vineyards, and all these things that are so wonderful didn't make themselves. There are still people in the houses. There are still settlements full of populations that are thriving. And it is God's command for you to go take that and to destroy all the people so that you can have the stuff. Maybe I'm alone here, but I doubt it. I'm a little uncomfortable with this. Go in and kill everybody and take all their stuff, and then enjoy it. Am I the only one that is bothered by that? Like on the surface, this is, this is a hard word. This is the command of the Lord that this is what you're supposed to do. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's thriving. It's incredible. There's all these resources for us to take and to be had for my blessing and all this stuff. But what you need to do is go in and kill everybody so you can take that land. To our modern sensibilities, we hesitate a little bit. We don't really like this. Isn't this kind of like the Crusades? I mean, calling it holy war to go in and kill everybody and take their stuff in the name of God? Isn't this almost like uh, the Puritans who left the Anglican church to come over to a new land, a promised land where their religion could thrive, and they just push the Native Americans out and take these places over for their own good? It starts to sound a lot like some of the things and abuses that people have blamed on holy war throughout the centuries. Is it not barbaric and immoral for them to do this? I mean, striking other image bearers and eliminating entire populations from the earth? I mean, for the sake of land and their stuff and resources? I mean, this is the stuff of movies. Like, this is why people go in and kill and rape and pillage everybody. Of course, that rape part is not here at all. 
But I'm saying we somehow just liken it to that. We're like, this can't be right. This can't be what God is asking them to do. So the question for us, why is it that God would do this? Why would he tell them to go do these things, to take this land? This is where it's so important that we understand context, that we understand this position, what is going on in these people's lives. Remember, we are not, we are not national Israel. We are not a people who is waiting on the promises of Abraham to be fulfilled in a specific land where Abraham walked. Those things haven't happened yet. And this is part of that to them. We do not understand also, if I can say, the severity of sin and rebellion against a holy God. Whenever we think somehow that this is a barbaric thing, I don't know that we've taken into consideration the barbary and immorality of sinning against God and what that actually deserves. We'll get to that. Let's take a minute, though, so that we can help situate ourselves and consider this promise-keeping God and this action of going into the land. And I want to tell us the backstory a little bit here. I'm going to go back to Genesis 11. This is where we meet a man named Terah. You probably, you may know him. If you don't remember him, he's Abraham's dad. That's where we meet Terah. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, we see God come to Abram. We call him, he calls him out. And for no apparent reason that we know of, he tells him to go away from his family and country and go to the land that God will show him. I'm going to read a few verses here. Chapter 12, 1 through 7. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, I mean, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old and when he, de- when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to this place uh, at Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Let me just rattle off a few things that he said to him. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will use you to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you, I will curse. In all, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. These are some huge promises, enormous consequences. And after these promises are made, Abram begins to travel through this country where the Lord has told him, and he has God showing him where to go. I'm going to give you a little bit more of a rundown. He sets out for Canaan in verse 7. We see God making a very specific promise about this land, Canaan, the land of Canaan, that it should be a land that he has chosen to bless his people with. It is their inheritance. Abram has a few more things that happen to him. He travels to the hill country, east of Bethel. That's between Bethel and Ai, the text says. He builds an altar there. He journeys towards Negev. He eventually leaves and goes because of the famine and sojourns in Egypt. Now, if you remember this story, 
He gives his wife, or he says, hey, make sure you don't tell anybody that we're married. Just call us your sister. That's legit. We can kind of like deceive and say that's what's going on. And if you remember, Pharaoh takes her in. I don't know how, this lady must have been beautiful. Like he's over 75 and this Pharaoh pulls her out and says, yeah, you need to come into, you know, my situation here and be with some of my women. And after all of that, the plagues come on Pharaoh and it pushes eventually him out. It pushes Abraham, Abram and Sarah out of this place. They go back out onto the road and then we see that eventually Lot and his herds grow too large for their situation. There was fighting between them. And still, in all of this, we still don't have the promise fulfilled that there will be these three things, land, offspring, and blessing. It seems like they continue to, to, to go from place to place to place. In Genesis 13, 14, we see God reiterate his promise to Abram. He says this, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, that's when Lot goes to the place, the valley of Jordan, and Abram, the text says, goes to Canaan. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if, if, if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled at the Oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Again, God has promised that this land will surely be possessed by Abraham and his people. It's a promise, and that it will be God who gives it to them. God has clearly promised Abraham blessing, offspring, and land, like I said, all of which point glory to God himself all which show him to, them to be his special people and that actually glorifies God in all of this. In the rest of Genesis, we see this massive struggle, especially with Abraham and him struggling to trust God that he's getting older and older and older and still he has no offspring. What's this about God? And yet in the son Isaac through Sarah, we see him keep his promise. The offspring is now come. And then we see through Jacob. And then we see through Jacob's sons. And we see now the 12 tribes of Israel sprouting out and moving into Egypt. Now, at first, if you remember, Egypt is actually a place of salvation for these people. Egypt is the one, because of what Joseph had to go through, is able to supply them with food and thriving. But we know the story doesn't end there. They are enslaved eventually. By the next fair that comes along, it doesn't know Joseph. It doesn't care. And so these people are now in bondage. We end up there. We know the Joseph story pretty well, but in the background, there's something else going on. We're so focused in on Egypt, we forget what's going on in the land. The Canaanites are filling it up. The Canaanites are there, and they are not friends of God. And they have not used it the way that it was supposed to be used. And they have rejected God. If you remember back to Noah, the Noah story, when Noah drinks and gets drunk, and his sons... Two of them do the right thing and they cover their father, but one does not, Ham. Out of that, if you remember, the curse comes to Canaan. These are the people of Canaan. These people began to take this land and use it for their own good, to worship other gods, to reject Yahweh, and to promote themselves, using anything they could, whether it's stones, whether it's trees, all these different things, calling them their God, and rejecting Yahweh completely who they know is the one that promotes himself as the real God. They acted in rebellion and were full. 
They're full-on willing idolaters, knowing what Yahweh said about himself and rejecting it and choosing their own gods. Of course, the Exodus is this enormous, historically important uh, event when the people God takes and releases them from this bondage, and he redeems his people. The next section, we see them at Sinai, and Yahweh formalizes his relationship with this people. No longer is it only Abraham and his promises. At Sinai, we see him make these people his people, and he codifies it with the law, giving them all an understanding of who God was and what that meant for them if they were going to be his people. And he calls them to obedience and to be his covenant people. And all the book of the law of Moses we see coming out of this. Then we get to Numbers 13. God comes and tells Moses this. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. His message is the same. Go to Canaan. I promise this. I'm going to give it to your people. But then you know the story as well. Ten come back and say, the land is awesome, but there's no way we can deal with the people there. There's no way that God could actually deliver us. While Joshua and Caleb say, let's go in. God has said this was going to happen. Let's go into the land. He's going to give it to us. He told us he would give it to us. And yet, because of the rebellion, 40 years they spend in the wilderness. A whole generation of people dies. And their legacy is found in the Psalms that the Lord hated that generation because of their unbelief. Now, we get to Joshua. And these people are on the edge of the land saying, we don't want to do what happened before. God has given us this land. He told us that he was going to give us this land. Joshua and Caleb know this is the land that God promised to us, and he will fulfill his promises. Look, he did it already. He's blessed us, sending us out of Egypt. You remember when they, when they leave Egypt, what happens with the people around them? They like shower them with their stuff. They're like, get out of here. Take gold and all this stuff. We can't handle you near us because of all the plagues. God has blessed them, and they are, they are offspring of Abraham, millions of them leaving, but still no land, still not the fulfillment of that promise back to Abraham. So you know this story. They go in. They understand this is where they're at, and Joshua knows this, and he's helping people understand as they approach the banks of the Jordan that this is what we've been, we've been waiting for for so long, and God says that he will give it. And for you to not believe that is unbelief in who he is. They know that the inhabitants, although big and scary, are wicked enemies of the covenant God, Yahweh. They know that they have a sure promise in this land. God has promised it. He's blessed Abraham already. He's done these things, taking them out of Egypt. He's given them his law, which proclaims who he is to them. He has made them his covenant possession people. This is the time this is no time, excuse me, to doubt God's sure promises and that he will be a covenant-keeping God. But what about our question? We get all that. Okay, we're expecting this, but like, what about the people in the land? Like, you're still telling us to go in and slaughter all these different nations and to take over their stuff? Are you really saying that we should destroy all these innocent people? May I remind you, these are not innocent people. Again, I don't think we take seriously rebellion against God. Uh, for instance, if you remember this, um, I won't jump there first. We need to take seriously what God tells Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. He says, those who bless you, I will bless. But that's not the end of it. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. 
That's a promise and a sincere understanding of how those people interact with God. And these people were less than hospitable to Israel and their land. In fact, they're going to war against them. And so we see that this great rebellion that's happening in the land of Canaan has consequences. It is a direct threat to God himself. And if you remember, in the, even in the, the Abraham narrative, you have Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Do you know why Sodom and Gomorrah happened? It's not just a clever story for us. It's because the wickedness and rebellion of the people reached the ears of the Lord. And he had to crush it and judge it. Sometimes God rains fire and sulfur down from the sky. I haven't seen it in my lifetime, but he does that. He uses natural, supernatural things. He also uses people's obedience to do his work. And this is how we get here. Not only has he used natural means, like we would think maybe sulfur or, or, or maybe enormous hail, we'll find out later on in Joshua that God sends down and kills armies with this stuff, or the plagues of Egypt. He uses all different kinds of things. And yet, we understand that he also uses the obedience of his people. This is how we got here. This is what leads us to understand the expectation when we go into the first chapter of Joshua, what they're feeling, understanding the Canaanites, that they are not people of God. They are not his covenant people. Understanding that there's a bigger purpose here, and that's to do what God has told them to do. I want to stop and ask two more questions about, the, about this book for a moment. The first one is, what's the purpose? Why is this book in the canon? Why is it here? But then the next one you saw there, we want to look to see what themes run through the book of Joshua. So let me start with the first one, the purposes. Jordan and I came, we, we want to, as a banner title for this series, is Promises Kept. This is what the book is all about. Yahweh does not go back on his promises. We read this, this short text here, Joshua 21, 43 through 45, and I'm going to read it again. Think about it in this context of God promising and keeping those promises. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood him, them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Joshua tells us the story of God's people entering and settling into a land that was long ago promised to God's people. Long ago it was made that promise to Abraham. It shows very clearly that God has led them up to the edge of this new land after wandering for 40 years and that he is preparing to give it to them. That this is his to do, not just theirs to take is God's to do. Let me give you a few passages. Joshua 10, 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites to the sons of Israel. Joshua 10, 30. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. Joshua 10, 32. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. In reference to the king at Hazor, this is 11, 8. It says the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. Joshua 21, 43. We already read it. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers. Catch the end. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. This is an immense mystery that we're all confused by sometimes, but that we should by faith rejoice in. That God calls his people to act and obey and do. 
And yet, the commentary every time is that God is the one that did it. That's immensely confusing for my small brain, but I understand it's true. He calls us to action, and yet at the end of the day, I don't get any glory because I know my wicked self, actually, and I know I can't produce any righteousness, and I know that God is faithful. What a lesson for us, right? I mean, how few times are we actually obedient? But then when we are, we get real excited about our obedience. We nailed it. You know, like, obedience, got it. We're even kind of excited to, like, modestly tell our life groups how we've been doing, and we had some victories in our life. And, and maybe, maybe you're better than that. Uh, maybe you just have it inside your heart. Um, but isn't it like us to be like that and to not recognize that it's God who gives the land? Yes, we may not be called to conquer a land. You're called to obey day in, day out. All the different things that it means to lead your families, to love one another. And yet he is the one, as we know from Philippians, that he is the one doing the willing and the working for his good pleasure. It is God who keeps promises. All glory be to him, not ourselves. And when we take it for ourselves, we've totally destroyed our understanding of what God is doing through us and how he decides to work. And we've stolen the glory from God. Let's not do that. So the central purpose of the book is that Yahweh keeps promises, that he delivers what about the themes, though? Uh, let me show you a few themes. There are five main reoccurring themes through the book of Joshua. Now, the, the church that I grew up in, like, and, and, and through college, I had a lot of different pastors that were very good at alliteration. Um, that means like putting all the same sounds at the beginning of the words you remembered, like the list. I really worked at this this time. This is not my own, but I think this is good. Um, you're going to see these things as, as the themes that run through Joshua. The land... Leadership, law, Lord, and rest. Couldn't do it. Couldn't figure out a way to make that one an L. Uh, let me talk through them for a moment to help us, though. The land this is an obvious one, right? They're coming to possess the land that Yahweh has promised hundreds of years before. Uh, this is the entire book centers around the possession of the land. This is going to go through the whole way and help us understand as an object that Yahweh is giving and how good that is and what it represents. So we'll see the land. We're also going to see uh, leadership. From the opening verse, we realize that Israel's greatest leader ever, Moses, the servant of the Lord, is dead. And now what? There's this seeming vacuum, seeming there's a vacuum there of, of leadership. And there's a need for one to step into that gap and be the servant of the Lord. And Yahweh supplies through Joshua. And Joshua shows us the need for a faithful leader, one who obeys the voice of the Lord and is willing to do all that he's commanded to do. We recognize the familiar call from Joshua, I'm sorry, from God to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Understanding that obeying the law and leading the people in this is not easy. And it demanded leadership. Most important, a leader, though, is not his political prowess, not his military might, although Joshua may have had some of these things. The most important thing that we find out in Joshua is religious commitment to covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. This is the most important aspect of this leadership. Man, as elders, we're learning this. Like The number one thing we could do is to know God and to love him with our heart, soul, and mind. 
not to go get, go to different conferences and learn how to be better leaders. We certainly want to pick up on good tips. Don't get me wrong. But the best thing we could possibly do is know how to and with all of our hearts love and obey our God. And we see that in the book of Joshua. We'll learn later that the people need a leader who is willing to go before them, represent the people to God before him, and live as one who is completely committed to God's agenda. Joshua does an excellent job of that. But he also dies. So he shows us that he's not the stuff. He's not the end. There's a better Joshua coming. How about the law? Uh, the third thing there, several individual instances throughout the book, you'll see it highlighted. And then as I showed earlier in the first part, the structure of the book shows that the first five chapters are helping Israel come back to say, you got to look at the law of Moses. You got to look at the law of the Lord and understand what it means to be his people, including circumcision. You got to understand what it means to be committed completely to God. And at the end of the book, when he exhorts them what it means to look like uh, a certain nation in this land that we talked about, it means following the law. The fourth thing there you'll see is Lord. It's, it's kind of not really fair to, to, to separate law and Lord because the law is what is generated from our Lord. That law reflects his character. It's helpful because we still want to see that the laws are important, that they go back and reference them and understand and obey but far more important than that is what Jesus said, not to love the Bible, your God, with all your heart, soul, and mind, but to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is a covenant relationship between persons. God is a person, and he calls them into a relationship. And so we see the Lord himself, extremely important. You'll see this all the way through Joshua. And then the last one, rest. I tried. I just couldn't make it L. You know, like lethargy. Like I just couldn't get an L to make it work. But rest is going to come up over and over again. It's a very important uh, theme for us. It shows us not only that it's a rest, like a, a taking a nap, but more like this idea of rest from war or rest from wandering away in, in, in the wilderness, away. And that he promises people rest. Uh, this is a gift from God. It's something that Yahweh desires for his people. And the author of Hebrews will show us eventually that that rest was not ultimate and that we are still looking for a rest. Along the way, we're going to see that this is a major theme in Joshua. So we talk about purpose, talk about the themes in Joshua. I kind of just want to talk about one more thing. We have the purpose. Promises kept. Got it. It's pretty, that's uh, like very concrete. Yeah, keeps his promises. We understand that. But there's this nagging feeling through the book, and once you get to the end too, that it might not be just that easy. Has anyone noticed that Joshua's not the last book of the Bible? Like, there's a lot more going on after that? Like, it seems very concrete, right? Like, it should be over now. Promises God fulfilled. Like, we're done. Praise God, we're here. Isn't we live happily ever after? Joshua 13, 1 through 7, after they have finished their main conquest, the Lord tells Joshua that the land has not yet been possessed. 13, that's like when he's starting to go into distribution of the land. Then in 1563 and 1712, we find out that there was a failure of certain tribes to possess parts of their allotment. Well, is, it, is it fulfilled or is it not fulfilled? Like, did, did you really, is it, is it all complete? Like, are we fulfilled or it looks like it's not in some of these different aspects. It's almost like, yes, it's fulfilled, but not everything. It's almost like, yes, you've got it. It's here already, but not yet finished and complete. Like there's something else that we should probably consider. And then there's this really unsettling verse that we find at the end of chapter 23. 
Joshua is charging Israel to keep covenant faithfulness with their God, Yahweh, to love him, to obey, and do all that's in the book of the law of Moses. And then he says this, If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. But there's not a period there. It's a comma. And you shall perish quickly from off the good land that has been given to you. As Joshua's dying, he's giving the people a reminder that this land that they're so thankful for and enjoying can be forfeited. It is not ultimate. But we are asking, I mean, isn't this what Joshua was saying? I mean, isn't the culmination of all of God's promises to Abraham? Isn't it the end of Israel's journey? Like I said before, don't we kind of live happily ever after after this point? Isn't that what's supposed to happen after God fulfills all his promises? Yes, but not yet. Not here. Joshua preaches to Israel of the absolute necessity of covenant faithfulness. The theme isn't be so happy about the land that you've got and now you're totally secure. He continues to come back and say, if you transgress, you could lose all of this because what's far more important than the land is the one who gave you the land. By this time, we've been through the spiritual preparations at the beginning. We've been through the actual conquests and battles. We've gone through and divided up the lands between the tribes of Israel. And at this point, he reiterates what Moses had been saying from the beginning. It's not about the good gifts that God is giving you It's about the God who gave you the good gifts. Don't worship the gifts, stupid people. What a stupid thing. The land is something he made. He made it. Like, like, do we get how big that is? If you get the giver, you get everything. If you just get the gift, you got something that perishes, something that goes away, something that can be lost. But if you have him, you have everything. Joshua's conquest shows us that God is faithful. But again, we can't miss that the fountain of all good things, or as James said it from our last time, the father of lights gives every good and perfect gift. Everything comes from him. You see, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know the people of Israel will try to obey. They will try to heed Joshua's words. They will try to do these things. But like us, they will fail. They will transgress the law. They will eventually be judged by the Lord and they will perish quickly from off the good land God gave to them. Because if you know anything about the prophets, it's that they're gone away from their land now. They've been taken into exile, into captivity, and they're gone from the precious land that God gave to them. The gift that they so loved and forgot the giver. Is this real fulfillment then in Joshua? Is it ultimate fulfillment? Joshua will prove to us very clearly that God fulfills his promises despite his wandering people, despite those who want to rebel, and even those who want to try really hard. God will be faithful to his promises, and his grace is the one that gives the land. It is God, God, God. In the name of Joshua itself, we talked about this. It's not good land. Joshua doesn't mean good land. Joshua means Yahweh delivers, Yahweh saves. The whole positioning of the book is to God and so that we don't misunderstand that these good gifts are not an end in and of themselves. They're important. They recognize a giver, but the Yahweh God who gave them is far more important. Joshua's conquest and the land of Israel are real. 
The rest of the fulfillment is real. But we have to ask ourselves, is it final? Is, there, is this the ultimate land? Is this the ultimate rest that we were so longing for? The fact that we sit here today proves that it's not final here. It's not ultimate here in Joshua. So many of the New Testament books are written to the dispersion, or written to the scattered church abroad, who aren't all in Jerusalem. They're all over the world because their message for something far greater. Their inheritance is not centered on this land. Their inheritance is found in the better Joshua, the one who will point to the future and say, there's something far better ahead of us. I'm talking about eternality when I deliver to you the new heavens and the new earth. And so when we look at Joshua, we're not supposed to see and be so sad that it got, we got lost out of there. We saw the land, it got some really incredible military conquests, and then we lost it. Ah, nuts. Maybe they'll go back and get it again. What we're supposed to see is that God was faithful and that the land was never everything. The land was a wonderful gift, but God himself, Yahweh himself, was the truest of those gifts, giving him, them himself and going into relationship with that God. So, us, what do we take from this? May I just remind you, brothers and sisters, the life that you now live has now been given to you. The things that you have have been given to you. All the different stuff, even your salvation and redemption is a gift from God. Do not take it for granted, but worse than that, don't worship the things that you have. Or turn it into yourself and be self-focused. But let us remember the one who saves, the one who we will need again and again and again. And let us not focus on the land, but rather on the giver of the land. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and ask that you would use your text to preach your message. We thank you for the better Joshua and Jesus Christ, who has led us and who will never die, who has come to save us from our sins, as Matthew tells us. The one who is not just Joshua and delivered, but he delivers us from our sins, the thing that Joshua could never do. The, the thing that the blood and of, the, of the bulls and goats could never do. Jesus, you have done it. May we worship you today and look forward to what you are doing in yourself. And if we can know that we, to love you with our heart, soul, and mind is to have everything. God, you are faithful. You've kept promises and you will keep them all the way going forward. Lord, would you increase our faith? We believe, but help our unbelief. May we love you. Give us affections, hearts that love you and not the world around us, not ourselves. We need you, God, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.